0: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 7, 2024. The U.S. Senate defeats a combined $118 billion bill that has aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan and U.S. border security. The vote was 49 to 50, short of the 60 votes needed to advance it. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects Hamas's offer for a ceasefire and hostage release deal, calling the demands delusional. We'll get Secretary of State Antony Blinken's reaction. He's in Israel meeting with the prime minister and other Israeli leaders. Back to the Congress. U.S. House passing a bill on party lines to ban government health care programs, including Medicare and Medicaid, from using quality adjusted life year metric and similar measures when determining insurance coverage or negotiating prices. Sponsors say that this is discriminatory. Congressional Budget Office releases its 10-year budget and economic outlook predicting that under current law the U.S. budget deficit will grow from 1.6 trillion dollars this year to 2.6 trillion dollars in 10 years and interest payments will consume a historic share of the budget. And Maryland Governor Wes Moore gives his state of the state address saying that public safety is the top priority. A story from TheHill.com, Senate Republicans voted Wednesday against advancing a bipartisan border security deal that was part of a larger emergency foreign aid package to fund the war in Ukraine, Israel and Indo-Pacific security. A motion to proceed to the package failed by a vote of 49 to 50, with most of the Senate Republican conference voting against it. Republican Senators Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, James Lankford of Oklahoma and Mitt Romney of Utah voted to advance the measure. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, voted no, citing opposition to $10 billion in military aid to Israel, given the deaths of more than 27,000 Palestinians in Gaza. And Democratic Senators Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Alex Padilla of California, and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts also voted no. The Hill.com article also has this, that Senator Schumer said earlier Wednesday he intends to move onto a Plan B after the failed vote, and put a package on the floor that contains aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other foreign policy priorities, but doesn't include the border deal. Before all the votes, here is Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, Democrat from New York, on the Senate floor.
1: Today, senators face a decision several months in the making. Will Senate Republicans vote to start debate, just a debate, on bipartisan legislation to strengthen America's security? stand with Ukraine and fix our border? Or will they cow to Donald Trump's orders to kill this bill? Will the Senate stand up to brutish thugs like Vladimir Putin and reassure our friends abroad that America will never abandon them in the hour of need? Will Republicans take yes for an answer and seize the best opportunity, the best opportunity, that Congress has seen in decades? to secure our border. This is the choice Republicans face today. They can either choose what's good for the country's national interest, or they can choose what's good, at least in their minds, for Donald Trump. Mr. President, I've always believed the Senate works best when we take the bipartisan path. Not everything is perfect in this bill. But I see it as my job to let bipartisanship take hold whenever possible. And this bill reflects that. But all week long, Senate Republicans have looked more and more like their House counterparts and transformed themselves into the Chaos Caucus. Republicans have said they can't pass Ukraine without border. Now they say They can't pass Ukraine with border. So today, I'm giving them a choice. They can show America where they stand and what they stand for. Which way will it be?
0: Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, majority leader on the Senate floor. He was followed by Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, who explained that the border security provisions in the package that's on the floor is not something that he can support.
2: Yes, it's true that we hope to come up with something credible. And on our side of the aisle, Senator Lankford from Oklahoma has done a heroic and a thankless job of trying to come up with a negotiated package. But the fact of the matter is, the package includes catch and release, still, providing additional or continuing incentives for people to come to the country illegally knowing they'll be released into the interior and it does nothing to stop the biden administration from abusing something called parole which that means in order to avoid bad press in order to avoid embarrassing tv pictures of of an overwhelmed border they simply just release people into the interior of the country for two years and give them a work permit Are you kidding me? They now claim to be the defenders of the border and for border security? What a joke. What a joke. And it's a bad joke. We know as a result of Biden border policies supported day in and day out by our Democratic colleagues for the entire time that President Biden has been in office have resulted in roughly 7 million Migrants being released into the interior of the United States and 1.7 million gotaways, is what the Border Patrol calls them. People evading law enforcement for good reason, I suspect. Either they're transporting the illegal drugs into the interior of the United States, or maybe, just maybe, out of that 1.7 million, there's, there's a few people who are on the terrorist watch list. We know the border patrols detained roughly 170, I think, at last count, people on the terrorist watch list. That's the people they know about. But they can't tell us how many more people on the terrorist watch list are among those gotaways.
0: Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, on the Senate floor, speaking against the U.S. border security provisions contained within the larger $118 billion bill that also has aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan before the vote to move forward with the bill and that vote failed he mentioned senator langford that's james langford republican of oklahoma the lead republican negotiator on the us border security part of this The lead Democratic negotiator was Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who posted today, my friend James Langford, knowing that minutes later his entire party will vote against our bipartisan bill to fix the border, explaining what it means to be a U.S. Senator, one of the most important speeches I've heard in 10 years in the Senate. Proud of you, friend. And he attached a few minutes of Senator Langford's floor remarks.
3: I'm going to vote yes to be able to move on to this bill. So we need a change in the law. I understand we have differences, but we've got to sit down together, figure out how we're going to solve problems, because the American people sent us here to do that. This is the pin that I was handed at that desk when I was sworn in to the United States Senate. And I signed a book that was at that desk with this pen because I was becoming a United States Senator. Because the people at home sent me here to get stuff done and to solve problems. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just gonna do press conferences. I can do press conferences from anywhere, but we can only make law from this room. And to do that, you need one of these pens. There's a hundred of them in this room and 60 of us have to agree to solve a problem. And I'm determined to sit down with anyone who wants to solve the problem, regardless of what side of the aisle that they're on, to figure out how we solve these things. Because Americans are ticked off that this is not resolved. And they expect us to get things done. So why don't we do that?
0: Senator James Langford, Republican of Oklahoma, on the Senate floor. And that combined U.S. Border Security and aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan bill, $118 billion total, did not move forward. The vote was 49 yes, 50 no, short of the 60 needed. Although one of the no's was Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, a Democrat who changed his vote from yes to no for procedural reasons, allowing for a revote After defeat of that bill, as Senator Schumer mentioned, they moved on to Plan B, as he called it. That's $95 billion just aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan and no border security provisions. Senator J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, posted a video in opposition.
4: Hey guys, JD Vance coming to you from the U.S. Capitol. I want to give an update on something that's going on because it's really important for all the patriots out there who care about our country. Uh, today there's a border security deal that's going to be voted on. It's a disaster. It does very little to secure the border, may actually make the invasion worse. That deal is going to go down in flames. Uh, but the establishment working with the Democrats will then propose a new funding package that funds Ukraine only, does nothing on border security, and gives away any of our leverage to actually procure some real border security from the Biden administration. So it's really the worst of all possible worlds. Send $61 billion to Ukraine while doing nothing to secure our own border, and also give away all of our leverage to achieve real border security uh, and force Biden to do his job. It's a, it's so important that you talk about this, that you call your senator, that you push as much as possible to defeat this deal. We're gonna vote it on it this afternoon. It's a Ukraine first funding package, and we have to defeat it. Even friends of mine in the Senate who support Ukraine say it's insane to support a Chuck Schumer Ukraine package before we've even had a chance to read it. So whatever side you're on on the Ukraine question, Everyone can agree that passing $100 billion of aid to foreign countries without reading it and without using our leverage to achieve border security is a nightmare for this country. We've got to defeat it, and this is maybe the single most important bill to defeat that I've seen in my time in the Senate. Let's get to work.
0: Senator J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, posting that video. You can always follow the Senate live, gavel to gavel, on C-SPAN 2 television and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and streamed at cspan.org. This is Washington Today. Story from Reuters out of Doha. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Wednesday, total victory in Gaza was within reach, rejecting the latest offer from Hamas for a ceasefire to ensure the return of hostages still held in the besieged enclave. Netanyahu renewed a pledge to destroy the Palestinian Islamist movement, saying there was no alternative for Israel but bringing about the collapse of Hamas Hamas had proposed a Gaza ceasefire of four and a half months during which all hostages would go free. Israel would, would withdraw its troops from the Gaza Strip and an agreement would be reached on an end to the war. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken discussed the offer with Benjamin Netanyahu after arriving in Israel following talks with the leaders of Qatar and Egypt, the countries that have acted as mediators. Secretary Blinken later met Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah and At a news conference, the prime minister said the day after is the day after Hamas, all of Hamas
5: there is no other solution other than this complete and decisive victory, because otherwise it is just a matter of time till the next massacre, and the axis of terror from Iran will continue. So only by destroying Hamas will we have security for the State of Israel in the north and in the south, because Hamas would like to radiate its terror all over the Middle East. I said to the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, we're just a touch away, a finger away from that decisive victory.
0: Part of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's news conference in Tel Aviv, that interpretation via Sky News. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, later held his own news conference in Tel Aviv. Gil Tamri with Channel 13.
6: Mr. Secretary, thank you for the opportunity. Gil Tomari, Channel 13. It seems to be that the entire Biden doctrine vis a vis Israel, a future Palestinian state, and normalization with Saudi Arabia is collapsing. Netanyahu says no with capital and to any form of a Palestinian state. Saudi Arabia says a normalization with Israel will only be considered after an independent Palestinian state is formed in the 1967 borders, which is Jerusalem as its capital. So how does the U.S. intend to break this uh, deadlock? And uh, secondly, uh, regarding uh, uh, the hostage deal. Uh, after we listen uh, tonight to Prime Minister Netanyahu that says that uh, Hamas's uh, demands are delusional, mm. uh, how do you find the space, as you mentioned, uh, for negotiation, and uh, do you feel that Netanyahu is exhausting every possible option to bring back the Israeli citizens kidnapped and held hostage by Hamas, mm. or again, Israeli politics is intervening? Mm. And lastly, why did you cancel the, your visit tomorrow to Kerem to Shalom?
7: So this is good. We have a, I think we have a trend going of at least three questions for hey, question. hey, I, I, yeah. um, uh Last question first. Uh, there was no planned visit to Kerem Shalom, so there was nothing to, uh, to cancel. Um, one of the things we want to make sure, as well as I said, uh, is that assistance be able to move smoothly and uh, sustainably, uh, but uh, there was nothing to cancel. Second, um, I guess I'll go in reverse order. On the uh, hostage agreement, again, uh, uh, I can only repeat myself. Clearly, clearly, there are um, things that Hamas sent back that are absolute non-starters, and I assume that's what the Prime Minister was referring to, but I don't want to speak for him. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we see in uh, in what was sent back uh, space to continue to pursue uh, an agreement and um, th- these things are always uh, negotiations uh, it's not um, it's not flipping a light switch it's not yes or no there's invariably back and forth and as I said we see that we see the space for that and given the imperative given the importance that, we all attach to bringing the hostages home, uh, we're intent on, on pursuing it. Uh, finally, as I've said before, um, you know, we were, before October 7th, uh, pursuing uh, the possibility of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And in fact, I was scheduled to come to Israel and to Saudi Arabia, I believe it was on October 10th, to to pursue that and in particular to focus on what we already knew back then was a necessary Palestinian component to any normalization agreement. Um, When I saw the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia just a, a couple of days ago, he repeated to me his um, desire and determination to pursue normalization but he also repeated uh, that in order to do that two things uh, need to happen Uh, one there needs to be calm in gaza two uh, there needs to be a clear and credible pathway to a palestinian state so as i said before you can see the path forward for Israel and for the entire region with integration, with normalization, with security assurances, with the pathway to a, a Palestinian state that entirely changes the equation and the future for the better, for Israelis, for Arabs, for Palestinians. And in so doing, isolates groups like Hamas, isolates countries like Iran, that want a very different future. But as I also said, going down that path, pursuing it, requires hard decisions. None of this is easy. And so it will be up to Israelis to decide what they want to do, uh, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. No one's going to make those decisions for them. All that we can do is to show what the, the possibilities are, what the options are, what the future could be, and compare it to the alternative. And the alternative right now uh, looks like an endless cycle of violence uh, and destruction and despair. Um, We know where the better path lies, but I don't minimize in any way the very difficult decisions that would need to be made by all concerned to travel down that path.
0: Secretary of State Antony Blinken part of his news conference in Tel Aviv after meeting the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders. From CNN, the U.S. House on Tuesday failed to pass a standalone package for $17.6 billion in Israel aid amid opposition from both Republicans and Democratic leaders. Because of resistance among members of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, House Speaker Mike Johnson had been forced to bring up the bill under a procedure that requires two-thirds majority of the House to approve it. That means he needed the support of a sizable number of Democrats to get behind it and failed to cross that threshold. That was from CNN. During the floor debate, one of the Democrats in opposition was Rashida Tlaib of Michigan.
5: Here we go again sending $17.6 billion U.S. tax dollars with no conditions attached to Netanyahu's extremist government to drop more bombs on innocent Palestinians. The Israeli government has already killed 27,000 people. 11,500 of them were children. I'm tired of my colleagues coming to me whispering, I don't really like Netanyahu. Well, then why are we sending them billions of dollars with no conditions? He literally is telling us, over and over again what his intention is. I'm tired of my colleagues coming and whispering to me, Rashida, I support a two-state solution. Great, then send money that conditions for a two-state solution because Netanyahu has over and over again told us he never wants to see a Palestinian state. So I'm tired, I oppose Netanyahu's war crimes and want him gone too. But many of my colleagues that continue to tell me that do not want to condition the aid, they give it to a genocidal maniac. My message to those co- my colleagues is simple. If you don't support Netanyahu, if you're disgusted by the countless videos of lifeless children pulled out of the rubble, if you actually believe in upholding human rights and international law, vote no on a blank check to Netanyahu's genocide.
0: Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, on the House floor on Tuesday before the vote on the $17.6 billion for Israel. It did fail. It was under a procedure that... ...required a two-thirds vote to pass. Many other Democrats voting no, but not necessarily for the same reason as Congresswoman Tlaib. It was because it was a standalone bill for Israel, not tied to the other requests from President Biden, aid to Ukraine, and the Indo-Pacific. story from The Washington Times, House Speaker Mike Johnson chalked up the GOP's failure to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and pass a standalone Israel aid bill to being a symptom of a messy democracy. Mr. Johnson, Louisiana Republican, called the votes a mess, but said neither the failed impeachment nor the failed emergency aid bill were reflections of his leadership. That was from the Washington Times. Speaker Johnson met with reporters in the U.S. Capitol building today, and they asked him about that impeachment vote.
5: On uh, impeachment, I mean, what happened yesterday with the vote on Secretary Mayorkas, why bring that to the floor if you didn't have the votes? And will you hold another vote to impeach him?
3: Yeah, on impeachment, last night was a setback, but democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, We have a razor-thin margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. But listen, we have a duty and a responsibility to take care of this issue. We have to hold The Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security accountable. Mayorkas needs to be held accountable. The Biden administration needs to be held accountable. And we will pass those articles of impeachment. Uh, we'll, We'll do it on the next round. House Speaker Mike Johnson,
0: today with reporters in the U.S. Capitol building, back to the Washington Times article. There's this paragraph. While a last minute vote from the unexpected arrival of Al Green, Texas Democrat, ultimately sank the impeachment. There were three Republicans who voted no. Those three Republicans argued that there was no evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors and warned of how impeachment could be weaponized to remove cabinet members in a future Republican administration. And about that unexpected arrival, this from the New York Times, like a scene out of a political thriller, Representative Al Green appeared at the last moment to cast a surprise ballot from a wheelchair wearing blue hospital clothing and tan socks. He voted no. He had undergone abdominal surgery. Congressman Green had not cast a vote on the previous bill that day. So after the impeachment vote failed Tuesday night, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Green, Republican of Georgia, Told reporters that Democrats had been playing games.
8: So the Democrats hid one of these votes that they had. So was it wasn't something that people would see? Is that something that Republicans... I'm, I'm, glad, see I'm
9: glad you asked that because, um, well, we can basically look like, look at this as a game, unfortunately, and their strategy. And they hid one of their members uh, waiting to the last minute, uh, watching to see our votes. Um, trying to throw us off on the numbers that we had versus the numbers they had. So yeah, that was a strategy at play tonight.
8: So do you essentially see this as an attendance issue and you're confident that when Scalise is healthy to come back to the Capitol, you'll bring this back and you will be able to impeach Mayorkas?
9: It's basically two issues. It's several of our members need to think about things over the weekend. Uh, and then
8: secondly, we look forward to having Steve Scalise back. And you're, do you think that there's a chance that you can flip some of those GOP no votes? I mean, they went on a limb taking this thing today, you think that they're going to change
9: it? I would really love to see them go home and talk to their voters, the people that hired them to come here. Um, I know that several of them have very strong Republican districts. Um, and I also look forward to seeing Steve Scalise come back and then hopefully getting this done on the House floor
7: next week.
0: Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, Tuesday night with reporters on the U.S. Capitol steps referring to the House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, who has been out with health issues and so missed yesterday's vote and could have made the difference. And next week, we might see that they take another vote, and he does make the difference. Today, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, the minority leader, responded to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene.
5: Did Democrats let GOP leadership know that they had full attendance? And if not, why? And can you characterize your relationship with Speaker Johnson? It's not our
7: responsibility to let House Republicans know which members will or will not be present on the House floor on any other day or in connection with any given vote.
5: And your your relationship with Speaker Johnson, can you characterize it?
7: It's a functional relationship. I made clear to him uh, that, as has been evidenced throughout the entirety of this Congress, that we are ready to work with them on any issue in a bipartisan way, but we're done with them playing political games.
0: The House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, at his weekly news conference today on Capitol Hill. The House is done with legislative business for the week as House Democrats attend their issue retreat in Leesburg, Virginia. Washington Today continues in a moment.
9: Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean.
0: Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy
9: events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org connect and subscribe to Word for Word today.
0: Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at dot slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. The Congressional Budget Office released its 10-year budget and economic outlook today. A story in Axios reads the U.S. budget deficit is expected to climb over the next 10 years with higher interest payments set to account for a historic share of government spending, the CBO said on Wednesday. New projections from the nonpartisan agency show deficits jumping from $1.6 trillion this year to $2.6 trillion in 2034. Alongside a slightly less gloomy prediction for the nation's fiscal health than previously estimated, the deficit will be 5.6% of GDP this year before jumping to 6.1% in 2025 and ultimately holding at that level in 2034. That was from Axios. This all comes as Congress and the president have yet to finalize federal spending for the current fiscal year, which started last October, and the president will soon be sending to Congress his budget proposal for the next fiscal year, which starts this coming October. Here's the CBO director, Philip Swagel, at today's news conference.
8: So in the projections we released today, the deficit grows from $1.6 trillion in 2024 to $2.6 trillion in 2034. Measured in relation to the economic output, deficits during that period are about 50% larger than their historical average over the past 50 years. Net interest costs are a major contributor to the deficit and their growth is equal to about three quarters of the increase in the deficit from 2024 to 2034. Initially, net interest costs are similar to the amount of discretionary spending, both for defense and for non-defense activities. By the end of the period, at $1.6 trillion, interest outlays are roughly one and a half times larger than either defense or non-defense spending. Also boosting deficits are two underlying trends, the aging of the population And growth in federal health spending per beneficiary. Those trends put upward pressure on mandatory spending. Measured in relation to economic output, federal debt held by the public rises from 99% in 2024 to 116% in 2034, surpassing its historical peak. Then the debt ratio continues to rise, reaching 172% by 2054. From 2024 to 2033, the deficit is about 7% smaller than we projected last year, primarily as a result of the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023 and the subsequent continuing resolutions. Together, those laws reduce the growth of discretionary spending including the effects on debt service, legislative changes reduce deficits by $2.6 trillion over the next 10 years. In our projections, the deficit is also smaller than it was last year because economic output is greater, partly as a result of more people working. The labor force in 2033 is larger by 5.2 million people, mostly because of higher net immigration, More workers mean more output, and that in turn leads to additional tax revenue. As a result of those changes in the labor force, we estimate that from 2023 to 2034, GDP will be greater by about $7 trillion, and revenues will be greater by about $1 trillion than they would have been otherwise.
0: Congressional Budget Office Director Philip Swagel at a news conference today releasing the annual 10-year budget and economic outlook. You can find the video of his remarks and the questions from the reporters at our website, cspan.org. story from CNBC, Federal Reserve Governor Adriana Kugler said Wednesday, inflation is showing solid signs of slowing down, but she is not ready yet to start lowering interest rates. It was her first major policy address since being confirmed to the Board of Governors. In September 2023, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari also expressed caution about cutting rates too quickly. Neil Kashkari was interviewed by CNBC about how many rate cuts he expects this year.
8: So, how many rate cuts are you factoring in for this year right now, given this latest information? I mean, if if the Fed dot spots were suggesting six rate cuts, what what, what do you think is more likely?
0: I mean, uh, you know, I think the we're going to put out a new dot plot in March. Uh, you know, we'll see where I'm ultimately at, given the data that we get between now and then. Sitting here today, I would say two to three cuts would seem to be appropriate for me right now. But again, I don't want to prejudge things, but that's, a, that's my gut
4: based on the data we have so far.
8: Okay, that's a very different picture than, than what the market had been anticipating.
0: Interview on CNBC with Minneapolis Federal Reserve President Neil Kashkari. Wall Street today, the Dow up 156, Nasdaq up 147, S&P up 40. From the Washington Examiner, the House passed GOP legislation on Wednesday that would prohibit all federally funded health care programs from using cost-saving practices that discriminate against people with disabilities. The Protecting Health Care for All Patients Act passed 211 to 208 along party lines it would prohibit all federal health care payers from using quality-adjusted life years, or qalis and other similar measures to determine patient coverage. Under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, Medicare was prohibited from using qualities for rationing care to senior citizens. Other federal health programs, including the Veterans Affairs System and Medicaid, which treat many disabled patients, have been allowed to use qalis in cost-benefit analysis in providing care. That was from the Washington Examiner. Here's some of the House floor debate. Congressman Kathy McMorris Rogers, Republican from Washington State, in support.
9: As many of you know, my son Cole was born with an extra 21st chromosome. Most of you know it as Down syndrome. When Cole was born, the doctors gave us a long list of challenges and chances for heartache. It was difficult, but I could have never imagined just how positively. He would impact my life, my family's life, and the world. Today, Cole is a fun-loving 16-year-old with big dreams. He wants to be a football player, a pastor, and a race car driver. He's on the basketball team. He plays the drums. And for Cole, the sky's the limit. Cole and others with disabilities deserve every opportunity to succeed. We shouldn't be discounting their potential or prejudging the quality of their life just because of their disabilities. Unfortunately, several tools frequently used in our healthcare system do just that. Qualies and other similar discriminatory measures assign a dollar value on the life of a patient to decide if a certain treatment is cost effective. Oftentimes, discounting an individual's worth and the need for care solely because of their disability or chronic illness. It means that bureaucracy coldly determines the value of someone's life and could deny necessary health care due to that calculation. Measurements like qualities remove the consideration of unique circumstances and health conditions of a patient and their doctor's judgment from deciding what's best for the patient.
0: Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican from Washington State, she also chairs the Energy and Commerce Committee, debating on the House floor. The committee's ranking Democrat, Frank Pullen of New Jersey, opposed this bill.
10: When this bill came before the Energy and Commerce Committee, I sought to clarify its intent through an amendment during markup. My amendment would have ensured the legislation could not be construed to undermine federal agencies or the Biden administration's ongoing work to lower prescription drug prices for Americans, but that amendment was rejected on a party-line vote. I still do not understand why the Republican majority would be opposed to clarifying that the bill before us today is not intended to undermine the federal government's efforts to determine fair prices for prescription drugs. (laughs) Now, I respect the uh, chairman of our committee a great deal, but she keeps talking about how she's banning similar discriminatory measures. Well, the fact of the matter is that the bill doesn't say similar discriminatory measures. If she had said during the markup that she was willing to ban things that were discriminatory, it might have been a different situation. We might have had consensus, but that's not what's going on here. This says qualies or similar measures, not similar discriminatory measures. And some may say, well, what's the difference? The difference is the word discriminatory is not in the language of the bill. We have no problem banning things that are discriminatory, like qualies or similar you know, discriminatory measures, but that's not there. And so the problem is that this will be used by pharma to raise prices. This will the vagueness of the language opens up the door to pharma and the drug companies to sue and say that negotiated prices and efforts to try to reduce costs are not acceptable.
0: Congressman Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey on the House floor. The House passed this bill. The vote was 211 to 208, party line. Republicans voting yes and Democrats voting no. Bill now heads to the U.S. Senate. Governor Westmore, a Democrat from Maryland, delivered his second state of the state address today before the Maryland General Assembly in Annapolis. He summarized what he believed to be accomplishments in his first year in office and laid out his administration's agenda for year number two. He told the lawmakers the top priority is public safety.
11: The sound of a police siren does have a different pitch depending on the neighborhood that you grow up in. I felt handcuffs on my wrist when I was 11 years old because our community was overpoliced and we knew it. However, we still wanted to feel protected from violent crime and people who would have harm in our communities. That people shouldn't have to choose between feeling safe in their skin and feeling safe in their communities. But these are the kinds of false choices that dominate the public safety debate. Do you support law enforcement, or do you want to build stronger neighborhoods? Do you want to hold criminals accountable, or do you want to focus on rehabilitation? We're told to pick a side, oftentimes, by people who frankly do not have an interest in solving the problem. And so to break these false choices, we need everybody at the table. Our administration will continue an all of the above approach to public safety. We will listen to law enforcement and we will listen to the communities that they protect. We will listen to state's attorneys and we will listen to the public defenders. We will listen to elected leaders and we will listen to local advocates. We're up against a new challenge, and we need to come up with these new solutions. Our state is facing a record of high vacancies in public safety jobs. We need to address them, and we will, with legislation that we've introduced. Marylanders are seeking justice for victims of crime, more accountability for people who break the law, and better rehabilitation for our children. We must answer them, and we will, by working in partnership with the General Assembly. Neighborhoods are calling for us to get these illegal guns off of our streets and out of our neighborhoods.
0: Governor Westmore, a Democrat from Maryland, giving the annual State of the State Address before state lawmakers in Annapolis. It's the second address that he's given since he's taken office. He also asked them to fund a new Center for Firearm Violence Prevention and Intervention. And in a speech, he announced plans... For performance goals for state government and how they're going to be tracked to better measure progress towards serving Maryland residents. And he promoted bills to address a lack of affordable housing, support child care assistance, cut red tape for businesses, improve public schools and aid neighborhoods with high rates of child poverty. And he used the word partnership a lot, even joking about it, saying he puts a premium on that. We have got this state of the state address and other addresses from other governors around the country at our website, cspan.org. A story from the Guardian newspaper in Great Britain, Buckingham Palace and Downing Street are keen to demonstrate that King Charles is continuing to carry out his core constitutional duties as much as possible while having cancer treatment. As the Prince of Wales resumed royal duties by hosting an investiture ceremony at Windsor Castle, number 10 took the unusual step of confirming details of Rishi Sunak's audience with the King after an agreement with Buckingham Palace to disclose the information. Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister, leader of the Conservative Party. Number 10 refers to his residence, Number 10 Downing Street. That, from the Guardian newspaper. The weekly audience between the King and the Prime Minister usually is in person, but this time by phone. During Prime Minister's question time in the House of Commons today, both the Prime Minister and opposition leader Keir Starmer of the Labour Party sent their good wishes to the King and the royal family.
4: Prime Minister!
0: Mr Speaker,
2: I know the thoughts of the House and the country are with the King and his family. We wish His Majesty a speedy recovery and look forward to him resuming his public facing duties
4: in
6: due course.
2: the Opposition, Keir Starmer.
6: Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join with the Prime Minister in sending His Majesty the King our very best wishes for his treatment. Across this House, we all look forward to seeing him back to full health as quickly as possible
0: portions of today's prime minister's question time in the british house of commons in london thanks for listening to washington today sign up for c-span's evening newsletter word for word it's free and get the stories making headlines in washington email to you every day subscribe at cspanorg slash connect have a good night